Hi, this is Andy Moore, and welcome back to Andy's Treasure Trove, the podcast in which I share some of the fascinating conversations I've had with talented and engaging people whom I've either known, admired, or in many cases, both. In the last episode, number 23, we heard from visionary ethnobotanist, mystic, and writer Terence McKenna, and from Rick Doblin, president of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science. This episode, number 24, is a continuation on the same topic, the increasing use of consciousness-expanding substances, also called psychedelics or hallucinogens, for health and personal growth. People around the world are using LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and a whole range of other psychedelic substances to treat conditions ranging from allergies and anxiety to substance abuse and alcoholism, post-traumatic stress disorder, and many other problems. Some people use these substances in tiny doses to enhance their everyday life, work, and play. Some use them in higher doses for more profound experiences. This topic has been getting more attention these days due in part to Michael Pollan's recent book entitled How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. In episode 24, we'll continue this psychedelic journey, and you'll hear my brief chat with psychologist Ralph Metzner, one of the early LSD research pioneers at Harvard University, along with Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, also known as Ram Das, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil. Ralph talked with me just before going on stage at the New Living Expo in San Francisco in 2012. Then after that, I'm going to play you a short bit of that recording of Timothy Leary lecturing at my college, UC San Diego, in, uh, I think it was 1976 or 77, talking about psychedelic drugs, pleasure, and human destiny. After that, we'll hear Dr. Andrew Weil at the same MAPS conference in 2010, talking about how he cured some of his own allergies using LSD. And then we'll listen to a personal conversation I had with Dr. Weil around 2012. Finally, I'll have a chat with a friend here in Tucson, Arizona, who, as we talked, was under the influence of LSD. He tells about the subtle ways that it's influencing his perceptions and his engagement with his art making. So, it's obviously going to be a very trippy episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, I must say. Let's get into it right now. Ralph Metzner, LSD research pioneer at Harvard University, and the author of The Well of Remembrance, The Unfolding Self, and Green Psychology, was speaking at the New Living Expo in San Francisco in 2012. And my friend Margie Lewis gave me a ticket to see him there in a panel discussing the rebirth of psychedelic culture. Right before the panel started, however, I asked Ralph for a few minutes as he was waiting to go on stage to talk about psychedelic drugs and medicine and health. Would you mind having a, sure. a, a no, one minute I, I long chat with me? No, okay. Um, so I'm most interested in your opinion about the potential for the mind-body connection helping with healing and how you see psychedelic hallucinogenic drugs as one path to uh, strengthening that connection. Well, that's a complicated question. Uh, first of all, mind-body connection, yes, my view is a, is a holistic, integrative view. So to do any healing whatsoever, you have to take body, mind, soul, and spirit into account, or body, heart, mind, soul, spirit. And uh, you can't leave the spirit out, and uh, it's involved in everything, including what we might call physical diseases and infectious diseases and everything like that. Now, the second part of your question was psychedelics. Psychedelics are actually uh, 
a term that I no longer prefer to use. I prefer to use the term consciousness expanding. So the psychedelic has become a cultural phenomenon. And we're, this panel is birth of a psychedelic culture, and, uh, or subculture, you might say, underground culture. And uh, these uh, consciousness expanding substances have a role to play in the areas of healing and of psychological, psychosomatic, psychospiritual healing. And uh, they also play a role in creativity. And, but then apart from that, they, uh, as, uh, there's a whole culture associated with them because the drugs were made illegal and therefore they became a mass phenomenon and masses of people take them. So whether we think that's a good or bad thing is really irrelevant to understanding the culture. It exists. So we can wish that it didn't, but it does. And uh, so that's, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the substances as a psychologist and researcher in healing and understanding the mind. And I'm interested in the culture as an anthropologist, as an ordinary person interested in all the different cultural manifestations that exist. And uh, one thing I do uh, think is um, that um, uh, it's a very peculiar situation because people are wanting to do, including medical and psychological scientific researchers, wanting to do research on something that's actually illegal to use and to consume. That's not true. That's a very peculiar situation. That's not true of any other drugs. I mean, other drugs maybe, you know, have been just developed and haven't been developed yet and tested, and, uh, but at least... So, scientists that want to research these drugs and their possible applications of healing uh, have to get not only get permission to do them, but also then have to raise the money to research them. They can't get money from the drug companies because no drug company wants to develop these drugs. That's I, kind of peculiar, isn't it? Yes, I was going to ask you what it's like to be in, in a kind of a, a gray area where to do research in well, many I have cases. Well, I have to join this panel now. So Thank you so there much. There you go. Okay. Now we'll hear a few minutes from Timothy Leary's talk at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, I recorded it using the little cassette recorder that I recorded lectures with at the time. And so again, the quality is not so great, but I hope that it's okay. The great American consumer society has co-opted consciousness, pleasure, and co-opted body awareness. Uh, I should say about uh, the body and about the pleasure uh, movement of the 60s, uh, the notion of pleasure is something that you could study, that you could uh, become an adept at. The notion that it was a science or a high art simply didn't exist uh, in the 1950s and before. Apparently, the theology before the 1960s was this. For every little pleasure, there's a pain, pain, pain. <laughs> well, uh, during the 60s, uh, we learned, number one, that the human body uh, is a billion, many billion cell uh, receptive organ with all sorts of uh, sense organs and portholes and antenna and radar screens that you can expand the scope of the reception and sensation input tremendously and that you can learn how to master uh, and direct uh, the many new uh, nervous systems that you have uh, activated. The notion of uh, uh, feeling good as one of the basic fundamental foundations of life simply didn't exist. We're supposed to be good, not to feel good uh, in the 50s and before. The, uh, the notion that you could improve uh, your good feeling uh, came as somewhat of a shock. We were taught perhaps uh, by some of the Oriental philosophers that this could be done, the yogis and so forth. 
finally, uh, after a thousand textbooks have been written, a thousand swamis and gurus have run up and down the country, we're catching on to the point that um, feeling good is something uh, that you have to kind of work at, that you have to be alert, and that you have to be intelligent. You know, it's easy to feel bad. Just lay back and be stupid, and there'll be a line of people trying to make you feel bad. As a matter of fact, uh, much of our philosophy in the past has been a feel-bad philosophy that if you felt bad, somehow you were virtuous. But we're learning now that uh, feeling good is something that can be uh, developed, uh, that it's a skill. It's like any other fine high art, like playing a concert piano, uh, requires a steady improvement. And like tennis, if you want to feel good, always play with someone who is equal or better than yourself. I'm very happy that in the 1960s uh, we got to like each other better, got to like ourselves better. I'm glad that during the 60s we got the notion of uh, evolution, personal growth, self-actualization. These things didn't exist uh, before the 60s. The notion that you can keep changing yourself, uh, the notion to keep improving. I'm glad we uh, have uh, fallen heir to these uh, great opportunities. But my question is this. Did the DNA code play or work for two and a half million years to produce you Suntan, surfing, graceful, self-actualized, polyphase orgasm, sensory consumers of San Diego? <laughs> no, I think not. What Dr. Leary was about to go on to say that one thing that could be a better destiny for us, in addition to being graceful suntan surfer consumers in San Diego, would be to become part of the first wave of a human space migration and live off of the Earth. But that's a topic for another day. Now let's listen in on Dr. Andrew Weil's talk about how he used LSD to help cure himself of allergies using the mind-body connection. Over the years, as I've looked at the potentials and dangers of psychedelic drugs and their possibilities for clinical applications, I've been somewhat puzzled by several things about it. First of all, in purely medical terms, these drugs, especially the indole psychedelics, are probably the least toxicity of any pharmacological agents that we know. Uh, as you know, you know, you cannot, there have been no deaths reported with LSD directly caused by its pharmacological action except in one elephant. Uh, I'm sure most of you, I'm sure you, most of you know that horrible story. If not, you can look it up. The, uh, uh, the, the almost, the, the striking absence of toxicity of these agents, combined with their tremendous power to alter uh, perception and the mind-body axis, certainly recommends them for research and clinical use. What puzzles me about psychedelic research over the years, in contrast with my own experience with them, is that almost all of it has focused on psychological potentials. You know, initially with things like uh, um, helping people with end-of-life issues, for example, or with PTSD. My interest has always been in the, what I would call the, the psychosomatic potential of, of these drugs. That is their, uh, their potential to change bodily processes and physical disease, taking advantage of that mind-body connection. And to, to me, that's the most wonderful feature of human biology, that our bodies have the ability to 
know when they have suffered injury or damage to repair themselves. And this is not mystical, this is biology, and it's something you can observe at any level of biological organization from DNA on up. The DNA molecule, a huge macromolecule that's on the border between life and non-life, has the potential within it to know that when it has been injured by an ultraviolet ray, for example, and immediately to begin elaborating specific repair enzymes to repair the damage. Now, what has puzzled me in looking at um, this focus of psychedelic research on the psychological and the omission of the physical is that in my own experience, both in my personal life and in working with patients and in, in discussing this with a great many users of psychedelics, I have observed, seen, experienced, collected many individual case reports of quite spectacular healing reactions of serious diseases. Uh, and the, these healing reactions were catalyzed by a change in perception that was triggered by a psychedelic experience, sometimes um, deliberately by a therapist who guided the session in a certain direction, sometimes quite gratuitously. And I'll just give you a couple examples of what I mean. The first one that I'll give you is something that I have, have published. Some years ago, 60 Minutes did a, an in-depth piece on me, which was supposed to be friendly and wasn't. And uh, <laughs> I told the interviewer this story, which was incidental in, in uh, three days of interviewing about integrative medicine. And they sent out a press release with this as the headline. This was the story that they used. So, uh, and the story was, you know, Dr. Weil claims that uh, LSD cured his cat allergies. All right. <laughs> it did, and here's the story. <laughs> Uh, I, I, was, I was very allergic as a kid in all sorts of ways. I had hay fever, I got hives in response to various drugs and things. You know, I, I, was, I was allergic for a lot of my life, and one of the allergies that I had was to cats. And whenever a cat got near me, uh, I would tend to, my eyes would itch, uh, my nose would run. If I touched the cat, this got much worse, and if a cat licked me, I got hives where it licked me. So I had in my mind a mindset that I was allergic to cats, and therefore I didn't want them in my presence. And if a cat came near me, I would either push it away or withdraw myself. So there was a deep uh, ingrained defensiveness in my interactions with cats. One day when I was 28 and was making a lot of changes in my life, uh, I took LSD with some friends. I was living in the countryside in Virginia. It was a beautiful spring day. Uh, I was in a terrific space, everything was wonderful, you know, the world was magical, everything was alive, and into this scene a cat bounded and, <laughs> and jumped in my lap. And I had a, a split second of the, of the habitual reaction and suddenly I decided this was silly, you know, I was going to, why did I have to do this? So I started petting the cat, I began playing with the cat, the cat licked me, I had no reaction to the cat, I have never had a reaction to a cat since. <laughs> and that was almost 40 years ago. <laughs> now that's pretty spectacular. You know, as a physician, I would love to know what happened there. <laughs> and I'd love to know how to make that happen in other people. Um, anyway, I'll tell you one that's even more spectacular, which I haven't written about, and this was a 
roughly in the same time period. Another mindset that I had grown up with all my life was that I had fair skin and I couldn't get tan. And my experience, and I was always told this, you have fair skin. So whenever I went to the beach, my experience was, you know, a second degree sunburn, completely red, and then going home putting noxema all over my body, and then sheets of skin would peel off several days later. That was how I reacted to the sun, and I had accepted in my mind, this is the way I react to the sun. So also, in the same period when I was doing these experiments, I guess I was also 28, and I was, this was also in Virginia, and it was another time that I took LSD, and it was in a wonderful space, uh, and I was running around without any clothes on, and I was, <laughs> decided that, you know, it was such a nice day, I was going to lie out in the sun. And that I, I remember thinking, why should I think that the sun is my enemy? Why can't I simply, you know, enjoy the sun and be in it? I got tan instantly, and I have ever since. <laughs> you know, I now live in southern Arizona. I've spent 30 years in the desert. Uh, I develop wonderful tans. I've never had sunburns like that. An instant change in a, in, a, in a pattern that had lasted 28 years. That is pretty spectacular. How did that happen? You know, what's the mechanism of this? I don't think this is magic. You know, it's wonderful. Uh, but there has to be a physiological mechanism for that, which is a little more, in some ways, to me, a little more interesting and harder to understand than the disappearance of an allergic reaction. You know, allergies come and go, and I've always taught patients that allergies are learned reactions and that anything that's learned can be unlearned. And that, to me, is the most interesting thing about allergies. There's uh, a very, very interesting stuff in the mind-body literature about allergies. You can sh show a person who has a strong uh, allergic reaction to roses, a plastic rose, and they will have an allergic reaction. So I mean that shows the, the, that the, the higher brain is involved in this process. And there may be many ways to produce these changes or to break that, uh, but, but the potential for psychedelics to be used in this way are great. I could imagine, you know, in some era when, when psychedelics are available for medical use, maybe you could open an allergy clinic and, the, and you could have uh, 10 structured sessions. And on the first session, the person would take an, an ordinary dose of one of these things and be around the allergen. And then if necessary, they could come back and each time the dose would be cut down until for the last few sessions they weren't taking anything. I mean, the pill would, might look the same. And then you'd tell them that they weren't taking anything active and they could go about their business and not have the allergy anymore. Now, even extending this further, I have also collected over the years some very dramatic case, cases, and some that I have been personally involved with, of people with chronic autoimmune disorders, including especially rheumatoid arthritis, uh, also lupus, also multiple sclerosis, in which the same kinds of things have happened, where there was a dramatic shift uh, related to psychedelic experience, sometimes a single use, sometimes multiple use, in which the condition disappeared. It seems to me, I, I, I just can't imagine anything of greater interest, and it puzzles me that researchers have not looked at this aspect of psychedelics. You know, this is a, I see this as a great horizon and frontier of medical research. You know, I've always, taught that all disease is psychosomatic, but the problem is that word is so loaded uh, that when we talk about psychosomatic conditions, most people, especially patients, think that you're telling them that their diseases are unreal. And that's not what psychosomatic means. The word just means mind-body. I've suggested maybe we should use the word somatopsychic, which doesn't have the same uh, <laughs> connotation. 
but the fact is that's how it is, and that with many conditions, uh, we c totally neglect the possibility of trying to change things by manipulating the, the psychic compartment. Uh, the psychedelic drugs, especially, are incredible tools for doing so. Now, I think one of the great obstacles to, to psychedelic research in the past that complicated things is that, and as I'm sure all of you know, the experiences that people have with psychedelics are exquisitely dependent on non-pharmacological factors. Uh, they are dependent on people's expectations set and on the environment in the broadest sense, the setting in which drugs are taken. The initial people who did uh, research with psychedelics and showed very positive changes like Stan Groff, like Walter Pankey, um, these were people who understood from their own experiences the nature of these drugs, the, their dependence on set and setting, their belief system and the way that they were able to structure the settings, the laboratory settings in which they did research, shaped experiences in a certain direction. Other researchers who did not have those experiences, who did not have that understanding, read the results of the research, tried to reproduce them, and didn't get the same results. Because they thought that the drugs were magic bullets, that the drug contained the experience and would automatically you know, do the thing that was reported in the literature. And when the results didn't come back that way, they said, well, the drugs really aren't any good. So apart from all the moralistic stuff and all of the uh, cultural um, irrationality that thwarted psychedelic research, I think this is, this, this is a, in a way, an even greater stumbling block. Because th these drugs don't work in the way that the, ph the pharmacological agents that most researchers work with do. You know, they are not, it is not the, the, the magic, the potential is not entirely in the pharmacological action. And that unless researchers understand this, the likelihood of producing the kinds of positive changes that will get people, more people interested and may lead to a cultural change about the potential benefits of these drugs, this is not going to be realized. I guess in, in summing up and looking back on all this, although I have not been actively involved in, in either psychedelic research or marijuana research for many years, uh, I continue to be struck by the incredible positive potential of these agents, uh, not just for manipulation of moods and emotional states, uh, but for uh, dealing with and changing very real, very severe chronic medical illness through changing the, um, the way that people interpret uh, or perceive the symptoms of illness that they experience. And that by doing so, free up or unlock or unblock the body's healing potential. I think the fact that we've got this opening at the moment is terrific. I, I, I think we should be careful in the way that we design experiments and the way that these experiments are publicized. Um, but I, I think that looking at, you know, when you're looking at conditions which are not responsive to other methods, which involve lots of people, which are very costly, which are causative of human suffering, uh, that there is a great possibility now for getting support for doing this and to begin to change the, you know, this very, very outdated and unhelpful uh,
cultural perception uh, that we've lived with for far too long. So thank you. I'm going to stop there, and I want to continue by letting you ask me some questions. When Andrew Weil mentioned that people's experiences with psychedelics are exquisitely dependent on factors other than their actual pharmacology, I was reminded of the father of the theory of set and setting, Norman Zinberg. Zinberg's book, Drug, Set, and Setting, The Basis for Controlled Intoxicant Use, explains with data and case histories why people's relation to drug use changes according to the type of drug it is, and their existing mindset, and their physical and social setting at the time. I knew Norman Zimberg a little bit back in the 70s and early 80s, and I'd like to dedicate this episode to he and his wife, Dorothy. I met Andy Weil a little bit later in the 1980s, and there's a picture on the webpage for this episode of he and I in San Francisco the evening we met. I respect very much his efforts to integrate modern Western medicine with alternative and sometimes ancient modalities and wisdom. When I conducted the following interview with Andy via telephone around 2012, I was still living in San Francisco, but thinking about moving to Tucson, Arizona, where Andy lives most of the year. So you'll hear me ask him about Tucson, which eventually became my home a few years later. Dr. Andrew Weil, thanks so much for visiting Andy's Treasure Trove. Good to talk to you. A lot of my work has been focused on taking advantage of the mind-body connection in medicine in general to promote health and deal with common conditions of illness. Um, you know, we commonly treat allergies in clinical medicine by giving drugs that suppress it uh, and don't really cure the problem, don't change it. And the mind-body interventions often work very precisely and change it at its root. Uh, so I think it, the point is allergies can come and go. You can lose them. Uh, the mind plays a great role in that. And I can't always tell an individual patient how to do it, but just knowing that that's possible uh, I think is, is what you need to know. Uh, I lost uh, a lifelong hay fever by making changes in my lifestyle, by changing my diet, my activity, and, um, you know, the, the years when I relied on allergy shots or antihistamines, the allergies kept getting worse, but when I made these lifestyle changes and they disappeared, they disappeared for good. Well, that part disappeared for good was what I was latching on to. Um, yeah. It is worth knowing that allergies can disappear and that the, the switch for making that happen may be located in the mind. Mm -hmm. So what would, what would be the top suggestion you would have? I know that you've mentioned hypnosis as a treatment for allergies. That would certainly be one. Another would be to um, spend time in the company of people who've lost allergies. Really? And can convince you of the reality of that possibility. Uh-huh. But, but knowing consciously that this mechanism is at work, can we kind of talk ourselves out of it or think ourselves out of it? I don't think we can think ourselves out of it. That's the problem with all of this is that the part of the mind that we think in, we think with, doesn't connect directly to the controls of the body. Mm -hmm. And you have to find some way around that. Uh, hypnosis is a way around it. Uh, psychedelic drugs may be a way around it. Seeing a, uh, a shaman might be a way around it. But you can't just will yourself or think yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, um, do you think we ever will be able to? Are we evolving in that direction? We might be evolving in the direction of being able to disengage enough from our thinking minds that we can do all this stuff. Uh -huh. But I think that's a skill that has to be learned. Are the pharmaceutical companies um, on red alert because you're teaching people to use, to use themselves to heal? 
I doubt that they've paid very much attention to what I do. Um, you know, they're making plenty of money. I think they will move in the direction of of um, embracing natural um, uh, drugs and supplements as the markets for those continue to grow. Um, but I, you know, I hope that my efforts are having some uh, effect on prescribing practices of physicians, and they're also making uh, patients more aware of uh, the dangers of common pharmaceutical drugs and alternatives to them. Well, that reminds me of the debacle we're in with our national health care system. And uh, I know you would probably overhaul the whole thing, but that seems like, an, like a Herculean task, uh, given the polarization. Well, I'm working on it, though. And it's, that's exactly what I do at the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. You know, we're, we're training a new generation of health professionals to think differently and work from a whole different operating model. So I, I think the goal is to change it all. Otherwise, it's collapsed. I think the politics of this are just are just very discouraging. The uh, uh, it's it's unconscionable that the richest nation on earth can't guarantee basic health care to all of its citizens. Mm -hmm. But we can't deliver the present kind of health care to everyone because it's too expensive. So unless there's a fundamental change in the nature of medicine and health care, I, I don't see any way out of this, this mess. Um, so, you know, I think as the, the crisis in healthcare deepens, the wisdom of integrative medicine will become more and more apparent, and the people who pay for healthcare will be willing to pay for these kinds of interventions and services. So, in a way, it might almost be, uh, it's always darkest before the dawn? Absolutely. I just wanted to ask you quickly, I know you live most of the year in Tucson, Arizona. It's a city that I have a lot of interest in. Um, I visited there a few weeks ago and tried to kind of figure and feel the heat of summer and, and, and think if it was really realistic for me to go on thinking about living there sometime. <laughs> and, and you know what? I, I really felt wilted. I really felt, yeah. it's too damn hot. Now, I know you spend the summers in Canada. Yeah. You know, I paid my dues in Tucson. And uh, <laughs> when I was first there the first few years, uh, I thought the heat was amazing and consciousness-altering and uh, interesting and the thunderstorms in uh, July and August can be just spectacular, the, the most fabulous lightning I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But I found that with each year, uh, my tolerance for the heat got less and less. And I'm, I'm very happy now to be migratory. It just feels very sensible to me to be up north, uh, you know, during those very hot months. I'll be coming back uh, this year right near the, the fall equinox. Uh, and then, you know, fall and winter and uh, and spring in Tucson are just wonderful. So do you follow the, the, uh, the geese as they, as they make their migration? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for giving us the gift of your time. It's um, one of the biggest gifts one can give. So thanks very much for talking to me and my audience. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye. Now to close out this episode, let's hear my interview with a friend who asked to remain anonymous when discussing taking LSD to enhance his life and work. An hour or so before this interview occurred, he had taken what is called a microdose of LSD. We began our chat talking about the Michael Pollan book, How to Change Your Mind. Well, it was funny to me. I hadn't done any regular doses of LSD or any other hallucinogen for years. And yet reading his book and his description of the experience, it just sort of came back. 
It was a sense of, oh, I remember those feelings. I remember that sensation. Don't they call those flashbacks? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't a. It wasn't a physical recreation of the sensation. It was really more just, ah, I remember what that was like. Mm -hmm. Then I asked him what it was like to be tripping on LSD while being interviewed, and he gently corrected me. Ah, well, I, I wouldn't even describe microdosing as tripping. A friend of mine helped me get uh, just a couple pieces of um, LSD on blotter paper, and it's probably only about a quarter of an inch square. And each one of those quarter-inch squares is a full dose. Mm -hmm. And what I've read about microdosing is that a, typically a tenth of a dose is what's recommended. Well, I'm not capable of cutting something into even tenths. So I figured I would either cut it like brownies and go for ninths, or what I ended up doing was cutting it uh, into twelfths. And that was easy. So I just had you know these little teeny specks. And it is so mild that it's barely there, but it is there. It's just kind of like something that is present for a few hours, maybe six hours, uh, and then it goes away. I only do it at most every four days. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you just get used to it, and it doesn't have as strong an effect. Uh, people who do take hallucinogens every day after a while, it, it, it doesn't have as much of an effect. Uh-huh. Well, what were your expectations and what did you hope to get out of this process and, and what's it actually like? Well, it's interesting that what I hope to get out of it turns out to be what I have gotten out of it. And it reminds me of what Michael Pollan talks about in his book, where um, people who expect some kind of profound religious experience or epiphany or expect to be in touch with some you know greater you know power of the universe or something that is sort of how it plays out for them uh so mm -hmm. you it, i think one thing with with lsd is you often get what you expect the nice thing about the microdosis it's so minimal um when i'm focusing on something like going for a walk or talking with a friend or making lunch. It's just a normal everyday experience. But especially if I'm quiet and just stop for a few moments or if I just sort of gaze at something or am just quiet, uh, I'll notice either that there is something in my hearing, something in my sense of feel, uh, sense of touch, something in um, visually that is just a little bit different, just a little bit of a tweak. Uh, I'm a painter and I find when I paint it's much easier to get into sort of a right brain zone where I'm just not being verbal, I'm just painting and things flow very easily. People who have microdosed I think tend to find it, it helps with their productivity and that's been the case for me, both in terms of what I'm reading, uh, what I'm writing, what I'm painting, if I'm cooking. I tend to be more focused. And at the same time, I would say the biggest change I've felt is something that you get in spades on a full dose of LSD. And here it's much more subtle and much smaller. 
but a sense that all of the barriers and boundaries are just more permeable. There is less of a difference between me and an other. Uh, there's less of a difference between me and the chair I'm sitting in, the lamp I'm looking at, looking at you. Um, I feel much more of a flow of myself into the world around me and the world around me into myself. So it's, it's really a thoroughly pleasant thing, and I'm really glad I started doing it. I would say the goal is just to tweak and accentuate your own perception and to be able to start experiencing things just slightly differently than you do in your normal day-to-day -day way of being, but not in a way that is overly fantastical or hallucinatory. It just kind of makes me question a little bit and be aware of some of my preconceptions, things that I assume about how I experience the world. It, it's, it's a sense of kind of alertness and freshness um, that is not like doing a dose where suddenly you're laid flat for eight hours or something, or where you're really not doing anything except that experience. I mean, right now, um, I just have a really wonderful sense. There's a, there's a beautiful burgundy-colored uh, curtain behind you, and it's gathered, and it's got, the fabric has waves in it. And the waves have just a little bit more waviness to them than, <laughs> than they might usually have. And you just smiled. And your smile is just much brighter than I might normally see it as being. So it just sort of, um, I don't know, you know when you take a picture with your phone and you can go in and edit it and you can turn the, the, the light up a little bit and the contrast up a little bit or the... The, the tone down a little bit or more of this, less of that. It sort of feels like that. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about that first experience, because oftentimes the first of anything is, is more special. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a very strong memory. Um, I was a real goody-two-shoes 16-year-old kid who wouldn't consider... Uh, drinking a beer, let alone smoking a joint. I was, you know, just, um, you know, kind of whatever school and church and parents said was the way it was, and that's as far as it went. And I was um, going to actually a high school basketball tournament, and we were going to stay overnight. And I was driving with a friend and two friends of his, and they said, well, we're not really going to the game. We're going to drop acid. And I knew they were faking it. I just knew this was BS. You know, this is we're, we're in the Midwest, for God's sake. People, people in the 1960s, early mid 60s, didn't do things like that in the Midwest. So, um, and they pulled out these little purple micro dot pills, and one of them is like, you know, I think I might try to break this in half and do one and a half. And someone else was like, well, I'm only going to do a you know, half a hit, and, da -da -da. and I said, and I just knew these were little sugar pills, and this was nonsense, and I said, well, I'm taking two, and <laughs> I took two out of my friend, the palm of my friend's hand, and just popped them, and then realized about 45 minutes to an hour later that this was real, 
So it all kind of comes back to the old, you know, the best advice about taking hallucinogens is from, you know, the Beatles. It's just relax and float downstream. Um, you know, it, it, the only way to really deal with it is to just relax and go with it and let it happen. And fortunately, these two guys who I didn't even know, who were only 16, were pretty experienced. And they gave me that advice. It's just like, relax, go with it, have fun with it. And I, it was very visual. It was very auditory. And it was very, um, ugh, overused word, but it was very spiritual. It was just, I was going through a period in my life where I was coming to grips with the fact that I was gay. I was becoming sexually aware. Um, I was starting in some ways to question political system, the Vietnam War, the Catholic Church taught, you know, all kinds of things like that. And there was something about this experience that could have been really dangerous because I was really too young and I wouldn't recommend it for teenagers. I think your, your brain is still too malleable and too much information at that time. But it actually turned out not to be an experience of getting messed up or just getting high. It was a very serious exploration and we ended up having a great time with each other and we were we became very good friends. Uh, and then after that, through the rest of high school and college and in early working years, um, this was something that I would do, uh, you know, every few weeks, every couple of months, whatever, and just found that it was a great way to kind of recenter myself. By the time I got into my 30s, um, I was adulting a lot more, and it became just something that neither friends of mine were doing, nor there, there just weren't the opportunities and there wasn't the culture around it. I kind of stopped when people started talking about or started doing drugs like cocaine and uppers and downers, and that whole scene really left me cold because there's nothing exploratory about that. There's nothing anybody learned about themselves that was significant, I think, from taking a lot of the party drugs that became available. So um, the fact that I think it started this whole business of microdosing sort of took off in, in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. and the idea that, 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 that people are doing this as part of their work lives, their social lives, they continue to function normally, function well, but with a little bit of a twist, you know, that every few days you just kind of flick a switch and the world seems just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And so that's really pleasant. And do you imagine um, continuing this on and on and on, or is it a finite? No, absolutely. I'm in my late 60s now, and uh, it's very enjoyable. Do you notice that your paintings are at all different? I don't think they're different. I think they're more decisive. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it just seems clear where I want to go with something and what direction it's going to take and where shades and values and edges and shapes need to be tailored or, or fitted or changed. 
And um, when I'm at my best painting, it's almost as if the canvas makes those suggestions that it's not me exerting my will, it's just the painting is revealing itself. And so there's more of a sense of that right now. And so one of the things I think that I get out of painting is a playfulness. Mm -hmm. And that is also something that this microdosing helps with, mm. is a sense of just being much more playful in my approach to whatever it is, not just painting, but cooking, conversation, um, my, any interaction with the world. Microdosing to me doesn't feel like a separate experience. If you take a, a regular dose of mushrooms or um, something like mescaline or LSD, it's like you carve out a day and what are you going to do with that day? You're going to trip. Um, this isn't like that. This is just something that slightly tweaks the life you'd be living anyway. So, you know, there you go. And that's, and that's really pleasant. So it's just a slightly different lens, a uh, slightly different filter on your everyday experience. Well, I'm really glad it's working out for you. Thanks. I am too. I am too. I'm looking forward to continuing it. Okay. And it's fun talking to you. Well, thank you. Well, there you have it. What a long, strange trip it's been over these last two episodes. I hope you found them worthwhile. Would you please share them with your friends on social media? And also, please leave a comment or a review on iTunes. Sure would appreciate it. There are handy links to do those things on andystreasuretrove.com, where you'll find the episodes of my podcast, along with some of my films, videos, photos, and other artwork. I'd like to thank the late Ralph Metzner, the late Timothy Leary, and the late Norman Zingberg, but I don't know how. I can thank Dr. Andrew Weil and MAPS, for letting me use the recording of him at their conference. And I can thank my anonymous friend for sharing his experience of microdosing with me as he was actually experiencing it. And thank you, whomever you are. Thank you very much for listening to my podcast. Listening automatically makes you a treasure in my treasure trove, also known as my life. See you next time. All rights reserved. Thank you, Andrew. And goodbye.